I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. Hi, and welcome to episode two of our Tree Amble podcast. Unfortunately, I couldn't be with Archie for this interview, so it's done over teams. I think it works okay. Archie began his career off the farm, but has come back to manage the family estate in Essex. He's really thought through how the estate works, its economics, and the relationship between the estate and its tenant farmers. This interview discusses a whole range of economic, people and climate topics, including why Archie has brought back beavers to Essex for the first time in centuries. Great interview. I hope you enjoy it. Um, But the system we've designed here is trying to pick up lots and lots of different elements. So we're not going, we haven't decided that one route is good we've decided that variation and diversity is good and then it's trying to pick the best from what i've seen from the rewilding sector the region ag sector the you know the organic sector um you know it just pull it all together and go okay what is the best fit for us in terms of my interests what i think our land can do the flexibility i may or may not need to retain over that land because we're a multi-generational estate so you know changing something permanently is is a consideration. It's something we can do. It's something we have done. It's something we will do. But it is a major consideration, mm. which is slightly different from certain other people working in, in in areas. Investors, particularly, they can they only have to change it once, and as long as it makes a return, that's it. It's fine because they're going to at some point they're going to step out of that system. Um, so yeah. So, Spain's Hall Estate is in Essex near Braintree, and have you have you been there as a family? For generations and generations. Yeah, we've we, we are very lucky to be a very long-standing owner of of this piece of land. Uh, my family bought it in 1760, and I think we worked out I'm now the 11th generation right. to be a custodian. So you know we, we can look back a long way, um, but we also tend to look forward quite a long way as well. Try to anyway. So and and are you uh, are you a beneficiary of a trust? Um, are you, it's effectively a, uh, you're the beneficiary at the moment of that trust or is it not a family trust uh we have a very complex ownership structure so there are some things that are owned by individual members of the family outright there are some things that are owned by trusts some of which um are to have direct beneficiaries some of which you don't you know there's there's a this is one of the things that people find very difficult to understand about kind of long-term yeah. landed estates is that you may not just have one person who's in charge or one person who owns it. You may have one person who runs it for the time being, 
but actually there are a lot of other people in the decision making chain. But that's the critical thing is that you you are the custodian for a period of something which is extremely long lived. Correct. So you're making decisions today which will influence your children and your children's children's decisions about how they manage land. And that's yep. really that's really important about that long that longevity of estate ownership, which is different from maybe a an FBT for 15 years, a farm business tenancy or something, where you've got to make really very long-term decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing to say is that we are influenced by the decisions that have been made in the past. And it's not all about looking forward, although I do spend most of my time planning for the future. Um, we are left with a legacy of historic decisions, and that may go back to, you know, anything up to a sort of a thousand years in terms of you know, river management, land management, enclosures, things like that. Um, but also more recently, the the sort of community and social memory of what has gone on in the last hundred years is still quite prevalent. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we've got maps, you know, that I look at, which show what we were doing 50, 60, 70 years ago. And it, it's, it would be lovely to be able to just totally put that to one side. But, you know, we're, we're dealing with land that's been drained and redrained, and we still have drainage systems that were grant-aided in a certain time. We have field sizes and boundaries that were influenced by pretty recent policy change. Mm. You know, we have agricultural tenancies. You touched on farm business tenancies, but we still have agricultural tenancies on the estate which were granted in the 1930s. They're now multi-generational tenancies. So we have farming families that rely on being able to access the land that they do we might own it as a family underlying but it's, it's as far as i'm concerned it's their land you know they they look after it they pay us a rent we're very lucky for that um but in terms of the day-to-day -day decision making that's entirely up to them so you know it's it, in terms of how it's used there's as much of the history plays into that and what our opportunities are for the future is quite often colored by what worked or didn't work or you know, the risks and the failings and the successes of the past. Which is, it's really interesting because I, I'm concerned about climate change, um, species loss. I think those are the, those are the big issues for me. Um, and land is often seen as being an easy win um, in terms of changing things like carbon, for example. And, it, and yet again and again and again, we find it isn't an easy win because there's so much history um, at, investment cost wrapped up in land you can't change it overnight much as you'd like to no i think that's i think that's absolutely true i mean it, i i share your concern with the i i look forward and, and think actually do you know what in in 50 to 100 years time is my land going to be able to produce and support the same number of people you know my family others that we employ and my my assessment of it is that it isn't so therefore i have to do something different so and that's driven by my understanding of the climate crisis, my understanding of the biodiversity crisis, my understanding of where people and society and markets are likely to go. You are also right in that changing things takes a while. So, for example, some of the changes that I'm starting to implement now, I had to start planning five or six years ago because that is the lead-in time to getting access to the land and to running down the systems we currently have and to flipping changes. Even if that's not a concern, even if you know we were running a farming business, you still plan at least 12 months in advance. Maybe it can be anything up to three years in terms of a cropping cycle, 
Um, it can even be longer than that. So, yeah, I think in terms of the mechanics, it can be difficult. In terms of the science, I think land still is an easy win. Hmm. Okay. So just humour me. What 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 is the land area you've got? What's, what's the sort of primary cropping that you do um, over the whole estate? So currently, so the estate is 860 hectares. Um, 660 of those hectares is cropped for arable crops. Uh, now we don't, we, that's not in hand, but that's the whole thing. That's all of our farming tenants and ourselves. Um, so it's majority is arable crops. And arable crops for us mean wheat, barley, sugar beet, maize, um, for, mainly for AD, for anaerobic digestion. Um, and then there are some other things, you know, uh, beans, peas occasionally. And, and, you know, the tenants have, a, have, have free range so they can grow whatever they want. Um, but everyone tends to grow the same things. All those things are uh, then put into predominantly the commodity market. So, you know, it, none of our farming tenants currently grow anything for a sort of niche market. So, you know, a niche local local market. Um, we also have uh, about 80 hectares of broadleaf native woodland, um, some of which is ancient semi-natural. So the majority is actually ancient semi-natural woodland. Um, so we manage that in-house for, for the estate. Um, and then we've got sort of bits of grassland. Um, some of it is historic um, grazing meadow um, or grazing land, I should say. It doesn't really qualify as meadow. It's not that nice. Um, well, it's not that biodiverse anyway. Um, and other bits are things that we have either taken back off the tenants for various reasons because we needed uh, space to do something um, or the tenants have come to us and said, listen, this field is too small and too wonky. Our very big equipment can't get around it i would really rather not rent it off you um you know so uh, we've got a bit of that so that's how it currently stands and if is there any are there any sort of stock in your arable systems at all or is it still very much an arable only so uh, in the last uh, five years one of the farm business tenancies has brought sheep back into the rotation but that's the only stock that's currently on the estate because one of the sort of ideas behind some some of the regen thinking is to bring back animals into that that sort of the arable system, perhaps where my grand grandfather was a farmer in Suffolk, so not all that far away from you. He's at Charlesfield, and they very much had as an arable and animal system. I understand. <laughs> I was young when he died. Uh, he was sorry. Yes, I was young when he died, but I'm told by my mother that that's what they used to do. And of course, we've lost a lot of the animals from the arable system and. And we've replaced that with fertilizer and uh, and other approaches, haven't we? But is that thinking starting to come back onto the estate? Do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, we don't have to look that far back when we had a we had a Jersey, a milking Jersey herd, on the estate, which we ran, you know, as as a family. Um, so that was in the sort of sixties and seventies. That was then sold off, and you know, even I think the last dairy herd went from our parish here only five or six years ago so you know people think of east anglia as being predominantly arable or and it is but it's not exclusively arable there have been sort of uh, there have been livestock in the rotation um and it is definitely something we're seeing more come back i think the main challenge is that most of the farming businesses that are out there at the moment have gone down the or been forced down the specialization and aggregation route mm -hmm. so you know the only way you can make enough to keep going is to get bigger and to get bigger you need to drive down your costs and having 
variation within a business and having complexity within a business is always recognised or always used to be recognised to be a, a really good way of increasing your costs and reducing your margins. So, you know, I think the thinking on that is changing now because of the understanding of, uh, of soil biology and the cost of inputs. You know, is it cheaper to have some natural inputs rather than buying them out of a bag? The fact that fertiliser prices have gone up, what, 400%? Um, recently is uh, is that sharpening sharpening people's minds and it's leading to some different decision making I think because it you know thinking about this in terms of the I suppose people like Gabe Brown you know the sort of the the architect of, of regeneration it's 20 years ago he was doing his stuff uh, writing his books that using the animals to fertilize to build soil health and soil fertility to then crop you know, and, and actually the inverse of what you just said, which is that he, he goes around saying, well, actually, many, many small businesses make a more resilient business. But as you said, the economic thinking is that to specialise and to go down one route, you know, extremely well um, has been the way forward, certainly for the last 40 years. So we're in this interesting space, aren't we, where we've got the combination of those two ideas coming head to head. Yeah, I think so. And I think that I think there's probably space for both. Um, I mean, I do share a lot of sort of great Gabe Brown's thinking in terms of diversity. I mean, I look at it from a from an estate management perspective and you look at the businesses that we derive revenue from. And you know, I did some analysis on our on our numbers a couple of years ago and it was looking like we had something up to about 60% of our income was from farm rents. And 100% of that income was reliant on um, four or five tenants, all of whom were growing pretty much the same thing and selling it to mm. pretty much the same place. Now, you know, you look at that and you think, okay, that's that's a risk. And I could see what was coming in the next few years in terms of policy um, and markets a little bit and thinking, actually, do you know what, we need to do something about this because that puts our business at risk. And it's then it then flows down that actually some of those underlying businesses are probably at risk as well. But are the models there for them? Are the alternative models there for them to flip into? Um, is the fact that they're having to pay us rent one of the key barriers? Because one of the things that that I think Gabe, in some of his, but in, in particularly in dirt to soil, he does touch on the the fact that you have to get to a crisis point before you start to think about something differently, and I think that's very true. But it is very scary. You know, we are making some significant changes here. But we had to get to a crisis point with another part of our business that allowed me to then come in with some very mm. radical mm. solutions to that, to then get us to a position where we have the we have just the, the brain space to be able to think, actually, do you know what, there's some other stuff we could do, rather than just sitting there, no to the grindstone going, I've got to pay my bank manager, I've got to pay my landlord, I've got to pay my electricity bill, whatever. You know, if you're in that mindset, it's really hard to take the time out to go oh look someone's got a really good idea I'll, I'll, I'll free up a bit of my time effort and resources to try it and if it fails it won't matter do you know what I mean it's, yeah. it's quite a it's a difficult transition is the hardest thing and sometimes it's really costly so for us we're looking at we're looking at the land we've brought back in hand we are looking at, at sort of managing some of it with grazing animals and it's quite expensive mm. So just going out, you know, we have no cattle infrastructure. Yep. We have no crushes. We have no, we have, I don't even, I don't even know, barely know one end of a cow from another, you know? And I don't know how well we could look after them. I've got a good team of people. They assured me we could, but it's still expensive. Yep. You still have to kick yourself up. 
you know, we were faced with the same option, bringing land back in hand, thinking, do we want to start farming arable crops in hand? And in theory, we could have done. But you need about a million pounds to buy enough kit to be able to do it properly. <laughs> and so you sort of sit there thinking, actually, do you know what? There's there's what people want to do. There's there's maybe what they accept is a better end product for them in terms of how their business looks and the diversity of their system. But how do you get there? Because you need personal confidence. You also need financial stability and you need an ability to try and perhaps fail. And those things are quite rare. You know, you go to a bank manager and go, do you know what, I'm going to try it. And they go, great, okay, show me your business plan. Oh, hang on a minute, you're going to lose money for the next 10 years um, and you don't really have a payback point. Yeah, no, we're not going to, we're not going to, your overdraft can't be used for that, sorry. That crisis point, though, is 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 really interesting. And I, you know, I'm, I'm looking around here in, and I'm working in Cumbria. Um, we've got lots of upland farmers who are barely scraping a living, um, including farm business, ten, sorry, including BPS, the basic payment scheme. Um, what's it going to be like when that basic payment scheme comes out of it altogether? We don't know. They're going to be facing crises. We've had crises in terms of droughts in the last couple of summers. We've had crises in terms of flooding. Um, there are these critical points. We've got climate change ripping. It seems to me like there's lots of things stacking up now, which are crisis points. Um, and I, I'm concerned, but I'm also fascinated by by thinking about what direction we're going to go in. Um, and you know, lots of those characters are saying to me, well, for the first time in many years, I'm thinking of getting a job off the farm. So, in a, in a sense, that's the kind of that's the that's their stepping off point and saying, well, actually, I can't make a living off the farm entirely, so I'm going to go get a job somewhere else. Um, I guess in your sort of circumstance with a long-term family ownership of land and all that kind of that, that history there, you can't just suddenly drive down to London and get a job in a bank, can you? Or can you? I guess, well, I, I mean, in theory, I mean, a lot of people in my position would actually do that. Yeah. And they will have done that. And that will have been their primary jumping off point. They won't be running the estate day to day like I am. They will have a secondary source of income. And I'll be honest, over the last 20 years while I've been doing this, there have been any number of times where I wish I had that secondary income so yeah. that the farm didn't have to support me. Because, you know, it's subject to different pressures. You know, it's also constant income. Yeah. So, you know, you get you get a salary. That's great. Mm. It gets paid every month. Mm. Um, you live on a you live on something profit of any kind of self-employed business. If you don't make a profit, you don't get any money. Yeah. <laughs> so it's you know, it's a it is. I can totally see the attraction. I think what's interesting there is that the I, I, I don't know enough about upland farms to be able to, to to understand the economics or the pressures. But I can probably begin to empathize with some of the scariness of facing down the barrel of some of this stuff you know i uh, we we have a farming estate but i have a very wide and i'm lucky enough to have had quite a varied route into this so i have worked in a number of different sectors before i came back and started doing this and i still keep a hand in some of those sectors just because because of interest but if somebody was to tell me to turn around and tell me you can't live on your farm on your land and you know the most sensible thing for you to do is to up sticks and go and live somewhere else and get paid a salary and work for somebody else that is that would be very difficult for me to swallow mm. so i can empathize with 
how that would feel like a really negative thing for people to be facing. And I think a lot of people will face it. I think that the, the challenge is how how their communities, whether they're sufficiently plugged into a supportive community or whether it's a community level crisis that they're facing, that's going to be really hard to come up to get over. Well, what, I think it is a community level crisis very often. I mean, the pub has often left the village. Um, the school has probably gone as well because there just aren't that many kids coming through. Um, the church might still be going, but again, rural churches have had a decline in membership as well. So actually these are declining communities. Um, and I think there's lots of threats in that for people. Um, I suspect a lot of them aren't even thinking about it because they don't want to. They're just, they're just and, and particularly on a stock farm, you're busy all day long, every day. You can busy yourself on a stock farm because there's always jobs to do. And actually coming up from that and going and looking at the neighbours or, or two or three down the line and actually saying, well, you're doing something different. What can I learn from that? I think it's threatening to people and, and a lot aren't, yet, aren't there yet. But what crisis level do we get to before they start to do that? Or do they just go? I, I think there's some really I, good questions there. I, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that because I think everyone's personal, the personal tipping point is a personal tipping point. Yeah. You know, yours will be different to mine and it will be in response to different things. Um, and some people find change invigorating and quite exciting. And I'm lucky that I, I am one of those people. So I see adversity and I like to try and find a way through it and I find that kind of intellectually challenging and that's what keeps me going and change is something that I I strive for because it's interesting and because I think I can 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 get a handle on it and try and try and find a niche and do something interesting but you know there are other members of my family particularly sort of historically where that would be the worst possible thing they could do mm. you know they like things to stay that they, they liked things to stay the same and if something was being done differently then that was that sort of undermined their own identity and and i'm not saying that that's the same for everybody but i can see where why they would feel that you know yes particularly multi-generational where, you, where you've still got perhaps your your father even your grandfather on the on on the farm remembering how they used to do it and how it was in their day and then you're you're still under the under that kind of you're still in that in perhaps their mindset but you're also influenced by their mindset um, thinking about things changing though you've, you've obviously had a couple of summers which have been really dry and so your last summer was really dry um, you know I've always got my, my ear to Suffolk because that's where I'm, I'm from really and I know they had a hell of a year in terms of drought um, and resultant you poor, poor yields really is that something you're factoring? How are you, how are you coping with those kind of changes? Absolutely. It's, it's something that hits you in the face all the time. But what's interesting for us here is that we have floods and drought. Now, people don't think about East Anglia as being somewhere where there's too much water. Um, but the first entry point into doing something different that I took was a natural flood management project. So I was actually dealing with too much water. Um, and that was to the benefit of our local village because the village floods, people's houses floods. None of us, you know, we don't have property or, or kind of interest in the village. But um, I was quite keen to be able to do something about that. Our land lies upstream of that village, so it's the obvious place to start. We're at the top end of a river catchment. So, you know, that again explains why we have a lot of water or very little or none at all. Um, we've actually just had a, a, a modelling report done 
um, funded by one of the local water companies, um, Essex and Suffolk Water and the Environment Agency, where we have tracked this. So we have started to look at it because it's a core interest of mine is, is water. I used to work in the Rivers Trust movement and before that in the, in the water industry. So I understand the importance of water. But we looked at it, we got the guys at Atkins to look at it and say, okay, well, how do you link the high flows problem that we have, increasingly have, so we are seeing a lot more storm events, which on clay soil, if it's baked hard, like it mm -hmm. was for the most yeah. of the last couple of summers, it's like it's like pouring water on concrete. You know, it just disappears, goes straight down the river, and then it causes flooding at times of the year where people aren't necessarily used to flooding. It's quite ephemeral, it goes quite quickly, but it is still damaging. But then we also have the floods in the winter where we've had a lot of rainfall. It's on saturated ground. It does exactly the same thing, but for a different reason. But we looked at the, the, the flow flow patterns and, the, and the, um, the kind of climatic regime across it. And we worked out that we are, we are in water deficit for anything up to six months of the year. And I was lucky enough to sit on the Essex Climate Action Commission and saw some research that had been done for them that showed that the land classifications in East Anglia, which are predominantly, you know, two or three, grade two or three, or possibly four, so quite productive land, just the simple lack of water during summer is likely to push those land classifications down by one step, if not two. So where I'm sitting on a mixture of grade two and three land at the moment, if we don't do something to increase our resilience during the summer and the fact that when it rains during the winter, we lose a big chunk of our valuable topsoil and our asset, we're actually going to lose productive capacity regardless of what else we do. So, you know, if you just look at it and the, the best analogy I can come up with is, is, is the house. You know, you've got the house you live in. That house has a value. If you don't maintain it, the value goes down. If you do maintain it, then the value stays the same or goes up that's a really basic very simplified way of looking at our land and water is a key component in the value and the underlying ability to grow stuff it doesn't matter what that stuff is it might be water it might be trees it might be nut trees like we're doing it might be biodiversity crops like we're doing it's all of that stuff the underlying resilience of that is linked to water <music>the options you chose was to bring in beavers which is the first time beavers have been back in Essex for hundreds of years um, now lots of people are I, I suppose the jury is out for a lot of people in terms of whether beavers are a good idea or not but actually you've you've used them to really good effect haven't you well I, I hope so um, you're right we, we our project when we put it together in 2018 was the first first beavers to be brought back to East Anglia. So there'd been none in the east of England since they were hunted to extinction. I, said, I dare say my ancestors probably had some role in hunting them to extinction. We fortunately haven't found any records to support that, but I dare say it was the case. Um, but yeah, I, I went around the country um, looking at natural flood management projects and getting into kind of what beavers do. And I saw some of the research that was coming out of some of the other enclosures. So we weren't the first enclosure to do uh, beaver enclosures to, by any means. But looking at some of the research, thinking, actually, hang on a minute, these things do, they do a lot more than just flood risk reduction. So we were thinking about a flood risk project, or I was thinking about it, thinking, how can we do this? And it was all very much natural flood management or even some sort of formalised flood defences. And I was sitting there thinking, do you know what? This feels like a lot of money mm. for quite a low reward. 
there must be another way and then found out about you know what the beavers were doing and i've not you know i haven't really been aware of what we beavers were doing before sort of five six years ago and thought actually do you know what it appealed to my kind of stand back and be quite lazy mentality <laughs> we've got quite a lot going on on the estate yeah and if something will look after itself then yeah. that's inherently attractive to me so i thought do you know what this is great so rather than necessarily coming at beavers from a from an intrinsic they're a species that should be returned type come type viewpoint i came at them thinking wow these things are an amazing tool how do i how do i harness the benefits of that tool that i don't have to pay i don't have to tell what to do and i don't have to feed how do i get all those benefits without really doing anything myself mm -hmm. so that's where we come from so we put them into an enclosure um, we put two into an enclosure in early 2019, and we're just about to release um, some more into two new enclosures that we've just built. We're so sort of convinced of the, the benefits that they bring. Which is fantastic, because obviously from the conservation perspective, I, I read about and know about beavers. And in fact, we have the middle Alder estate up here. And I'm going to go up with Mike uh, Douglas, the ecologist that's been monitoring that in a couple of weeks' time to, to interview him as well. Um, and... I've seen what's happened as a result of those of those beavers coming in and the bird life, the insect life is phenomenal that comes back. Um, it's just whether or not we can live with them in terms of our industrialised farming uh, context. And I think that that's where I think lots of people are really qu querying that, that concept. But from what I see, it's just a joy. <laughs> actually yeah i think that, uh, beavers themselves are i, I won't you know, i mean going into our beaver enclosure the, the, the existing one that we've got um it's it's a wonderful place to be you know in terms of well-being i think the japanese call it forest bathing yep. you could just go in there you stand in there and it's like nowhere else on the estate you know we have quiet places but there's something different about it there's water and i always find water is something that i'm drawn to and in a clay-based system in east anglia i missed a river i worked for a long time in the northeast and you know used to whitewater kayak and things like that so i love water but we just didn't have any of it yeah so it was kind of one of those things it was like aha yes great this brings back brings back a watery element to to the farm so that's great um it, the biodiversity that's starting to come back into our woodland which is otherwise was otherwise a very bog standard woodland you know it's not triple si it's nothing special it's not even one of the ancient woodlands it's a sort of remnant um your biodiversity that's come back is amazing part of that is just purely in response to the fact that there is now water all year round so you get things coming and finding you in the landscape you know even just quite ordinary waterfowl that just come and find you mm. because there's nowhere else for them to go so you just think okay well that's great um in terms of how they fit into what you called an industrialized farmed landscape i think well, I mean, I've seen a little bit of how that works in, in other parts of Europe and, and it's not difficult to cope with the conflicts where they arise. Um, you just need a bit of institutional will and somebody to stump up some money. Mm. That's really all it, to fund people, to help people. Um, I think the problems for the UK are probably much wider than just the farming because a lot of where beavers will do it if they're not within a fence like ours are they will choose to build dams and they will choose to burrow and they will choose to cut down trees in areas where people are very much used to seeing a managed landscape so if for example our beavers weren't in our fence they would have immediately migrated downstream to find somewhere deeper the first place they would have hit 
would have been a village pond, which is about 500 metres downstream of us. If they had built their dam on the outlet of that village pond, the flood project would have increased flooding (laughs) to those very properties that moved in. And you'd need to find a way of sorting that out. So I think it goes much wider, actually, than just the farm landscape. I think the farming conflicts are actually remarkably easy to solve, but you need something, someone for people to turn to. So if you've got a beaver that's eating your sugar beet or your potato crop or even just your maize crop, whatever it is, you need somebody to turn to very quickly who will come out with a very pragmatic solution. And I saw them in Bavaria where they they basically just give people electric fencing or they, you know, they they have rules about um, fixed buffer strips alongside of watercourses. You know, so if a tractor falls into a beaver burrow that happens to be within six metres of the edge of the watercourse, then really you shouldn't have been driving your tractor there it's tough right. that's quite a german approach to it yeah i'm um, not sure we'd be that bold in the uk but i think the other thing is 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 about local communities it's about infrastructure you know the difference that we have here to some of the more kind of slightly wilder larger scale landscapes where beavers kind of coexist quite happily is that we just got a lot of stuff mm. you know there's very few rivers that I can think of. In fact, there are no rivers that I can think of that I've ever visited in the UK where building a beaver dam won't have some impact on someone in some way. Mm. Some of those will be positive, some of those will be negative, but really negligible, and some of them will be massive because they will flood, you know, a portion of a railway or they will yeah. cut off a community. You know, so I think it's I think it's as much to do with the people as it is to do with the animals. I think it's possible, but we don't have yet have the system in place in the UK to make it viable. I, I take on board all of those points, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, but my, my gut feel says that this is an animal that will do things for free that would otherwise cost us lots of money. So if we can get it right in the right locations in the right way, then it should be a tool that we can use. Um, thinking about other tools that we can use, and, and I think that's an interesting word, is actually earthworms, um, my, my, microorganisms in soils, soil fungi and things like that. And moving away from beavers, which is a fantastic subject and one we could I could talk about hours because I'm fascinated by them. But actually, soil health is the other big one for me in terms of your resilience. So you've talked about water, too much of it at some points, not enough for the majority of time. Are you, are you doing any active work on your soils to try and improve their resilience in terms of climate change? So, yeah, in the, in the long term, absolutely, that's that's our aim. Um, because the system that I've got mapped out over about 300 hectares of land is a very low intervention system. So we're going to be establishing permanent crops. So we're using agroforestry to grow the food, which means that we won't be having to go in every year and replant something. So that reduces the, the the kind of tillage disturbance on the on the um, on the surface of the soil anyway, and then between those alleys, whereas you can grow arable crops, we are going to be growing biodiversity crops. So we we've, we've gone in for a really big countryside stewardship scheme, and that's going to give us five years worth of breathing space. We're going to use a mixture of loads of different things, some to benefit above ground biodiversity, some to benefit below ground biodiversity as well. So, you know, we're doing all of those things. But if I just do one of the other things that came out of our water report, sorry to go back to water, but just to give you a kind of an illustration of the sort of potential we're talking about here, that we 
reckon that with all these changes we're putting in place, our soil water store, the total amount of water we can store, uh, store in well-managed soil is somewhere between six and eight million litres per hectare. So, you know, it's a massive, massive amount. Now, the only thing that we'll be able to make use of that will be the stuff growing in it, mm -hmm. really. This isn't water that you can store in there and pump out and treat and put into your taps. It's a completely different type of store, but it just gives you the potential. You know, we're a very, very ordinary farm. And if we have this level of potential, then so does everyone else. So you, you know, that's that water store, that's, that's crop available water. Most of it, yep. So in terms of these droughts that we've been having, um, this, this is water which is not coming from the air. This is stored water which your root systems can access for growing crops. Now, yep. that's, what we lose, that's what we've lost, isn't it, by recent kind of agricultural process, isn't it? By lots of tillage, which releases moisture. Probably not very many trees in the landscape. So winds crossing landscapes. Um, lots of bare soils in winter. Um, and with with mild winters, of course, that adds to evaporation as well. We've been losing more soil moisture. So you're so, you're talking about a soil store, which massively changes that argument. Yeah, it is. And and if you're all of those things are all of those things are are, are right to a greater or lesser extent, depending depending on where you are, because different soils will react differently. Um, but yeah, if you if you have good soil structure, which in turn is kind of exhibited by having good levels of organic matter and good levels of um, uh, soil microbiology, particularly fungi, which have you know structural and um, nutrient impacts as well. All of those things together, and the fact that you've got good structure, which will allow water to sit within that soil, and some of it will chemically bind to the soil and therefore isn't available to your crops, but is available to other processes. Um, if you're growing something on that and everywhere else has less water available, then the thing you're growing is going to be better off than mm. it would have been. So I'm really interested in the idea that we, we, we I'm obviously from the conservation perspective, but whatever your motivation to change your land, if your motivation's more crops, your more profitability, and we get to the same result, that's fine by me. It's absolutely brilliant, in fact, um, because I think we need to produce food. We probably need to produce more food at home than we have been doing. Um, so what you're talking about is, is something which actually aids your profitability and your resilience as a business. Um, there's got to be we've got to vote for those, haven't we? Really, in some some way. Um, how yeah. do you, do you? Is this something which is immediately cost effective to you, or are you having to get funding? in to help you to achieve that and if so where's your funding coming from that's a that's a really good question if i go back to your your, your last point about um motivators and drivers you, you you're absolutely right you know you can you can access these things by a number of different ways and one of the things that i worked from my time my i learned from my time in the conservation world is you've got to find out what motivates people so you've got to find the thing if if the thing that will get you a pond is the fact that somebody likes shooting a few ducks then build them a pond that will attract ducks. Yeah. They will be motivated to maintain it. They will be motivated to have it on their land. They won't object to it in the same way as you might do if you go, actually, do you know what? This is a great crested newt habitat. Mm. And you go, okay, that might turn some people off. It might absolutely do the opposite to some other people. You've just got to find the thing that, that 
motivates people. And the same isn't necessarily, uh, well, it, the same is exactly true of the big people. So the policy people and the investors, the people that free up the money to be able to do this stuff, you've got to be able to talk their language and you've got to be able to articulate the benefits in a way that hooks them. So if they are talking about impact and carbon sequestration and reduced risk in portfolios, you've got to understand what those things are and what they look like on the ground. And that's the way you get to people. And, you know, everyone, everyone's a bit different. This is where a good advisor from any, you know, with, with any kind of uniform or any kind of color or any kind of thing, a good person going on to, into somebody else's business, being a farming business or anyone else, the first thing they'll do is sit down and try and work out what motivates this person. Is it money? Is it the profitability? Is that their primary focus of this business? Are they very business focused or is it something else? And you can, as you say, end up with the same result, but for a totally different reason, um, if, you, if you're able to do that. And, and we've done it again in Cumbria on, on farms that neighbour each other. You know, literally one, one motivation on one side of the fence is the opposite of the other motivation on the other side of the fence, but you come up with the same result. me back to people really because I think people in the landscape are absolutely critical and we have these government policies which I mean the BPS thing going that says that's that's a decision made in Whitehall and that will massively impact on lots of people in various different ways it'll inspire some to change it'll make some people think about their numbers other people have already got their heads firmly down a hole thinking I don't want to hear anything more so we've got all these, but, but people in the landscape is, is that's the fascinating bit, isn't it? And, and do you, who have you had your best advice from and who have you got on with in this space? Because I think that's, it's kind of, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years and I'm learning every time I go and speak to people. It's great fun. And it's the people really that inspire me most. I, it, you know, it's a really interesting question and I'm not sure I know the answer because I, there hasn't been one person. There have been lots of individuals who, within their roles, or sometimes despite their roles, yep. have managed to help me do what I'm doing. You know, so there have been you know key allies within the Environment Agency, for example, who who, who just get it and they just said, yeah, absolutely, we get this. I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to find you a way around the processes that would normally stop you doing the thing you want to do because it's different. It doesn't tick the box in the same way that it would otherwise, but I see the benefits. And they've been advocating for me within their organisations, which has then led to me being able to do a lot of things. The advisor thing is a really interesting one because I got very frustrated in the early days of being involved in this family business, that the advice we were getting was pretty uninspiring. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting is that the advisors, I came to realize that the advisors reflect the clients they have. So if their clients are very conservative, uh, they feel the advisors then don't feel um, enabled to give less conservative advice they're, they're, they're going to be more risk adverse um, and I found this really frustrating because I knew there were different ways because perhaps I had a slightly different viewpoint because I had been working in different, slightly different industries I saw how other people do it 
And I think the best thing that I managed to do was to retain that wider viewpoint. So if you can find the space, the time and the inclination to do what you're doing and talk to lots of people or go to events which you think, you know what, there'll be nobody there that does what I do. You know, I've sat in finance events. I was, I went to a cop fringe event where it was all green finance people. And I, I, you know, once you learn the language, you can understand what they're trying to say and you can say, actually, do you know what? In real world, this is how it actually works. But here's an opportunity for you. Um, and that's really interesting. I think that's, I've got most of my inspiration from individuals within a world of different kind of uh, industries or sectors, but individuals that, that share beliefs as opposed to share knowledge, yeah. which I think is a slightly different way of looking at life. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm having much more fun with farmers at the moment than I am with conservationists. Um, to be a conservationist is, is to open yourself up to all sorts of pain, frankly. <laughs> um, I suspect farming is much the same as well, but we, we've met some amazing people who are doing some brilliant things. And I'm just inspired by people who want to change what they're doing because that's their living, that's their life. And, and it's great. But thinking, I mean, I'm an advisor, if you like, that's probably what I do. Um, I also know some very good advisors, but but we, we're all challenged by, um, I suppose, the the financial system we've got. So we've got contract stewardship. We've got these very rigorous processes that if somebody wants some money, oh, we have to go through CS to get there. Um, and frankly, I haven't seen a system yet that actually gives you what you need in order to facilitate what we want to do on farms. So for me up here, it's lots of hedgerows, it's field trees, it's... it's um, it's opening up gutters to make them much, much more natural and sinuous watercourses. It's stopping pollution getting into things. It's soil management, soil health, it, all these inputs that we get. You, know, you, know, you list that, and suddenly the list is a very long list. Um, and none of the schemes give you that. And if they do give you one element of it, they give it to you for five years, which is nowhere near long enough to change a system. No, it's, I, I, I recognise absolutely what you're saying. I think the... The thing that helped me the most was getting into understanding how, and it's a bit of a hackneyed thing now, but when I started looking at it in the sort of mid-2010s, natural capital valuation, that was like a, it, it, it sort of opened up the possibilities for me because it was suddenly like, actually, do you know what, if I can articulate these benefits in a way that is familiar to more people, then I can gain traction with those people and you either inspire them to change and that might be an on-farm change or it might be a financing route change or it might be a, 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 an underlying valuation methodology change. You know, it, it then allowed an awful lot more to be brought into the picture. And, and that goes for, you know, much wider than natural capital, actually. It goes for social capital and cultural capital as well. Once you start impelling people to consider these other capitals then suddenly the very narrow frame of reference that we've developed for what is value is blown wide open now that's all very well in a theoretical way but actually you still as anybody who's who's running a business knows you even a charity you've still got to pay the bills mm. so at some point something's got to bring in some money and be that philanthropy be it trading whatever it is it's got to, it's got to make some money so i then started to try and 
find routes to use that knowledge of, of, of other values and translate that into things that other industries could get hold of. So you asked a couple of minutes ago about, you know, where did we get the funding? And then you went on to say that there are some really common but quite restrictive routes. Countryside stewardship is one of those. So just to give you an idea, you know, we, we came up with what we call an ecological master plan for the estate, which is a very grand title for basically brain dump that I've done on a map with lots and lots of different interesting things, which is some, some poor person, Sarah, our ecologist, has to sit down and she had to try and make it real, um, which was fascinating. We've now got a, a hallucinogenic coloured map with, with all the different stuff, because I love diversity and I love, you know, complexity. Um, we then had to try and fit that into countryside stewardship. And that, it then went from being, you know, the most complex, the most idealised diverse system that you could come up with to something that fit within the standards. Yeah. And then there was an additional filter, because I am a businessman at heart, is I looked at it and went, actually, do you know what, those options are going to lose me money. So we further simplified because whilst my ecological and my sort of, you know, romantic brain went, yes, I really want to do these things, the financial realities were, you can't do that because it, it'll just end up costing you a load of money and whilst it'll look lovely for five years you then won't be able to do it again because you'll put yourself in a worse position so what we've been very lucky in doing because because we've been at the forefront of some of these things in east anglia so in terms of the beavers you know that attracted funding from a from a regional flood and coastal committee which they would never have funded this had it not been for those advocates i talked about but but also they probably wouldn't have funded it if it wasn't the first so we've been very lucky, the first, and we're trying to be the first or the biggest or the most unusual in everything that we do. And that then allows me a certain amount of leeway to go and talk to people, organisations, um, you know, statutory or government organisations and private organisations and say, listen, part of the reason you want to be involved in this is because it's new and because it's interesting. Now, that has really worked for us here, but we only get one here to that. You can only be the first once and you can only be the most interesting for a limited amount of time. So, you know, it's not a it's not a model that everyone else can follow. But what I'm hoping is that what we saw with the natural flood management stuff with the RFCC was that we we kind of came together with a small number of other projects in the region, which then in aggregated value meant that the RFCC could consider them. And that was quite novel in its own right. And that was driven by this, these people within the Environment Agency who thought it was the right thing to do and wanted to make it happen. Now that's happened, it was really hard the first time round, And it needed some of us to take a greater than average portion of risk. Mm. But now it's built in. It's embedded in that process. So other people can now come in. The barriers to entry are so much lower because they go, oh, it's a natural flood management project. Yeah, absolutely fine. We're familiar with that. We know what we're going to get out of it. Yep, here's the pot of money that we know we can spend on it. Boom. And I'm kind of hoping that a lot of everything else we do will, for those things that we're doing for the first time, and not everything we're doing is that cutting edge, but it's assembled in a way that is really unusual and unfamiliar, that will then hopefully pave the way for lots of other people to say, all right, I want to do agroforestry and you have a local example that you can go and see so they can come and see us and they go well what, you know what how did this work mm. you know where did you get your trees from what are they actually going to do how difficult was it to plant them how difficult is it to keep them alive you know what what kit do you need and all these kind of practical questions 
but also then for funders to go actually do you know what there's a, there's an example over there that's doing okay so you know we've got the confidence then it's not as high risk on our you know risk register of our funding system whatever it is it drops lower down the risk register because it's already been done and hopefully that then changes the landscape for everybody else well we need to normalize a lot of these activities um and i think normalizing things it, it, it takes somebody to, to be bold enough to go and do something but then people have got to learn from it and then normalize it and and yeah we had massive floods up here three lots of big flooding events um in in the last 20 years um and one of the projects I was involved in at T-Bay, we, we planted loads of trees on a common very high up the hill, up to about 500 metres. And Lancaster University came and did some studies of those trees. And actually, what did they say? Well, the trees help to reduce the risk of flooding downstream. Boof. You know, that's what the science says. We now need to go and do that at scale. Um, I'm waiting for government to turn around and say, yeah, crack on. <laughs> you know, go and do it at scale. We're, st we're still waiting for that. But we've got the science. We've done the risky stuff. You know, we're now in that space where people can come and have a look and learn and see. Yeah. Um, but I think what's interesting there is you've got you've got to that level of the process where you now need the terminology and the jargon is value transfer. So where the where the benefits accrue, so those those communities or that that area that is no longer as at risk of flooding or is its risk isn't increasing along the same trajectory as climate change. It's, you, you've you've kind of decoupled those two because yeah. you've done this this land use activity. What's missing then is the value that that creates or the avoided costs that that results in. So somebody doesn't have to spend as much money putting something back together after it's been flooded. A share of that value needs to go to the the different geographical location that is creating the benefit. And what something that like countryside stewardship or whatever ELM finally turns out to be within the water sort of sector has the potential to do that it has the potential and the same is true of beavers so you know in in some areas where you've got beavers that the flooding and the felling of trees which may be causing a, a detrimental impact in that location but is causing a massive positive impact somewhere else you need to find a way of linking those two together and saying okay well you know if you're if you're deriving a benefit from it then you need to recognise that and more than compensate where that disbenefit is happening, because otherwise that disbenefit won't won't be bearable by whoever it is. So we've been we've been chatting for nearly an hour, and I, I don't want to take too much of your time. It it it's been really really good and thoughtful. Thank you very much. One 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 thing which I would like to finish on though is is that funding and money side of things because. Um, what you've just said there is exactly the pithy problem I'm trying to juggle with up here, which is you know, nutrient neutrality, biodiversity net gain. There's all sorts of, of, of hairs running about private money coming into, into this space. Um, we're looking at the requirement for very long-term agreements, whether it's 30 years for nutrient neutrality or biodiversity net gain is 100 years. Um, I am really taxed by the idea that the private sector are going to work in a way which is publicly, it's public goods delivered by the private sector um, over those timescales and that they're going to want to do it. And I'm struggling with that because my, my gut feel is that this should come from the public purse and it's a tax 
that's that's hypothecated for environmental benefits and 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 these things because actually frankly if a small village in cumbria floods now i think they're going to be waiting an awful long time before one of the banks turns around and says oh we've got a pot of money that's going to they're going to sort your flooding out for you i think I think what's interesting, so we're involved, nutrient neutrality is not something we have yet around here, so I'm less familiar with that, but biodiversity net gain, we've, we've been working with Natural England on the credits pilot part of that for, for a number of years, so I'm quite embedded in that sort of process. And what I, what I always think about it is, 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 is it really doesn't have to be one or the other. So if you go back to a, to a sort of beneficiary mapping, in terms of you know what good things are coming out or what good things could come out of let's call it a piece of land use all right there will be you know good good cultural goods perhaps there'll be good social goods it'll be you know in local employment or it'll be just more people staying in the community you touched on sort of people migrating out of communities earlier um it will be things like you know good air quality now some of those things there is never going to be a private buyer for some of those things, as a land manager, benefit me more than they benefit someone else. So the way I look at it is say, well, those things that benefit me are things that I should do. So, you know, we come back to soil health. You know, a lot of that soil health stuff will benefit a farming in, a farming business. So you know, a lot of people are doing it anyway for that reason. They're not expecting somebody else to pay for it. But they have ancillary benefits that other people might be willing to pay for. So maybe the carbon sequestration, because their business is sequestering more than it's emitting. And if we step back and look at it more widely, you go, well, actually, there are industries out there that we all rely on that cannot decarbonize. So therefore, we have to find a way of kind of balancing the books. And if you could use private income to do that. The biodiversity net gain one's an interesting one because that's a regulated market. So it is a market that is created solely by the fact that there is a regulation in place compelling developments to more than offset their biodiversity loss. Now, let's let's assume that the metric is actually going to achieve that offset. So there are some conversations to have around the effectiveness of that type of system. But let's assume that it's, it's fine. Um, surely it's better to be able to free up the kind of transformative capital that we talked about earlier, it's that transition mm. cost. It's going from system A to system B is always expensive. It might also be emotionally taxing. And some of that emotion might be, um, you might be able to kind of reduce the emotional impact if you also reduce the financial impact. And so it's thinking about what are the tools, again, it's a bit like the beavers, you know, what are the tools that you have to hand to help those transitions happen? And I look at it for our system and saying, I try and, try and apportion the right amount of benefit to a beneficiary so that you're only asking them to pay for the bits they should. So for the example of the water industry, you know, if you've got a water resource problem, you haven't got enough water when you need it. If I can provide more water resource, that's not necessarily going to benefit me, but it will benefit you, Mr. Water Company. You won't have to build a bigger reservoir or you won't have to improve your treatment process or you will have more time to abstract from the environment or whatever it might be there's a value to you of that and i think the key thing is to is to understand the potential of your land holding in that way so that you're not asking somebody to pick up the whole thing and i think that includes the public purse because there are some things that really shouldn't 
be bought by public money. The public money should step into those gaps where nobody else is ever going to do it. You know, cultural heritage is probably a good one. You know, particularly in, in where you are in, 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 in Cumbria, you know, there's so much cultural heritage. There's so much sort of natural enjoyment people get out of the landscape there. That's not something that everyone's beyond what they're currently doing with tourism and things like that. They're not going to pay more for it because they just, you just can't find a reasonable way of, of making that work. So the public purse could step in there quite effectively and maintain mm. those things. However, if it is a you know, a direct benefit to an insurance company. So, you know, there's a community that's insured by such and such or reinsured probably more likely by something else and they get more premium saved or they get more, um, you know, they save some of their uh, payments um, for, for, you know, fixing flood damaged houses. Then there's a direct private benefit there and you can track that through the system. It's quite difficult, but you can do it. Mm. And I think it's, so I think it's a mix. I think it's you know it's putting that funding jigsaw together, and I don't, I don't perhaps share your concern that you know the private sector versus the public sector. I think it's got to be everyone, because I just think the scale of the problem we're dealing with, you, you can't really be choosy. Everyone's got to pitch in, and the public sector really has so many challenges to deal with that the private sector is never going to pick up. You know, education, healthcare, crime, and policing. You know, it's all of that stuff that. Um, yeah, I think it's just, it's it, it's a very difficult jigsaw to put together, but I'm quite happy to deal with all parts of it. I really loved the time I spent on Teams with Archie. It was sad not to go to the estate. I'd love to have seen what he's doing on the ground and to have met the beavers and to see his relationship with that land that's changing because of climate change and all these other things coming in. It's a sign of hope, really, that he's got so much energy and enthusiasm and wants to see that estate come forward with a real positive vision for the future. Next week, we're going to meet Andrew Hatton in his farm at the top of Nidderdale in the Yorkshire Dales. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music, so thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and